This is Better Ideas and I'm Peter Cahoon. Now don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and let your friends know you can join me each week for Better Ideas. Now we're wrapping up the sustainable conversation with Kirsten Juno from Reverse Garbage to talk refuse, reduce, reuse and recycle. And Adam Woodhams from Guarding Better Podcast talks sustainability and what we can learn from past generations. I also check in on his new home renovation and if he's managing the sustainability of his own build. Now make sure you're listening on the Acast app so you can check out all of the images from Reverse Garbage and also Adam's hero Renault shots. Well, Kirsten, I reckon we just start off with the obvious question. What is reverse garbage or is it obvious? What is reverse garbage? Reverse garbage is, that's a big question. That could be a whole podcast in itself. So reverse garbage was started 46 years ago by a group of teachers that could see that there was a lot of resources going to landfill. And they just started rescuing them, literally just in a truck, bringing it back to a warehouse and they opened it up to teachers. And those resources were used within their classrooms and education is still at the crux of what we do today. That's the crux of it, is education about reuse and sustainability. A great premise. People come to the centre, or you go out to them as well and deliver classes and into classrooms? We do both. So we are open seven days a week. We are open to everyone. Designers, crafters, students, educators, collectors. Going back to the education, we go out to schools, we have school groups come in. We love it when school groups come in. It's just amazing because your reverse garbage is unique. We are located in a 100-old army drill hall, so our building is reuse. Um, It has uneven floors. You are allowed to touch stuff. Things change every day. It is just a treasure trove of unique. So we love it when kids come because it's not like your standard shopping centre or it's nowhere they've ever seen before. So they walk around and their eyes light up and they just what is this what was that wow this is the best place I've ever been to so and that starts the conversations about you know what was this used for what could it be used for isn't this so refreshing I mean walk through Westford oh let's go to Apple forget it put a kid surrounded by junk yeah their imagination lights up and that's the thing we are a treasure we are just this beautiful warehouse full of unique things that just aren't prescriptive so we're very much about open-ended play non-prescriptive things Mm. that can be turned into anything it's you're limited only by your imagination and the other beautiful thing about having groups of children come in that and adults, it, play should be for everyone. You can offer the same group the same resources. So quite often we'll put together a kit and say, make what you can out of this. And they'll have exactly the same, but everyone will come up with something different. This is based in Sydney. What about other parts of the country? Can people get involved? Absolutely. It is about getting out into your local community and seeing what resources there are out there that can be reused and kept out of landfill. You can talk to your local council, their sustainability groups, you know, local chamber of commerce that you could get in touch with and say, look, what are you throwing out? I love going to people's businesses and say, seeing what, what I don't want to see what you're making, I want to see what you're throwing out yeah, wow. and how we can reuse it. Yeah. So there, yeah, absolutely. There are groups and there's one, in, there's another reverse garbage in Queensland and and it's, it's a worldwide phenomenon, the reuse, creative reuse. Mm-hmm. What type of things people have got to uh, throw out? They've got garbage. Yeah. Instead of putting it out on the street and getting the council to take it away, potentially this can be used 
Absolutely. by reverse garbage. Yep. So what sort of materials might you be looking for and not looking for? <laughs> and not looking for. There is, there's a very short not looking for yep. list. The what we're looking for list is as long as the proverbial piece of string. Mm. We love string. We love ribbon. <laughs> we do have some regular suppliers, things that are quite obvious, hessian sacks from coffee. We have manufacturers that make things. They might want the circle of a piece of rubber or plastic or plywood. So they keep the circle and we'll get the negative. It's hard to describe reverse garbage. We get so many, you know, people coming in, we'll use something for packing, we'll use it for an art exhibition, but it's the same product. What about, I mean, kids come in there, I mean, you've got bottle tops, you've got things that you pick up on the street, you know, yeah. and, and collect. What are some of the real imaginative things you've, you've seen the kids create? Recently worked with some kids to come up with, and they've had to, so not only was it the coming up with an idea, but they had to then give the elevator pitch, as it were, of the benefits of it, why they chose it, who their market is for. So we had amazing lampshades that were stationary um, display, you know, for all your desk organisers as well, rockets that were going to get us to collect water off um, distant planets. <laughs> so it's that extreme from, you know, desk in in front of you to, you know, interplanetary right. expeditions. Yeah, right. <laughs> and what happens to the stuff that they make? Okay, so we're very much about encouraging kids when they are looking at building things to be mindful of where it is going to end up. And that opens again the discussions about keeping things out of landfill and reusing them. We are very mindful about only saying, only take what you need. Don't just think, oh, I've got, it's like a buffet. I need, I need, I need. Just take what you need. We then encourage them to break them down and we'll reuse those items in the next class. They can take them home and use it or we dismantle and resell. It's not only kids too. I believe you sort of get into businesses and it's a bit of team bonding, different different way of team bonding. Tell us about that. So we were just recently um, down at TEDx at Sydney. So that was a great event for us. We were able to do a 99.9% reuse stand so everything on for our stand was sourced off the floor at reverse garbage and then we made junk jewelry so we had participants would want to buy um we had plates of just buttons the obvious sort of beady type things but then as well you know old shoulder pads which are great to cut up people were making junk jewelry to you know to wear around the conference so <laughs> and it is a part of that storytelling because people look at things and we do get a lot of dead stock old stock that's been hidden for 20 or 30 years and so people come and go oh, I haven't seen that for ages or what the what is that we had once from an old hardware store we had all the um, handles that were plastic and were very 70s, very orange. And a guy I bought a hessian sackful. I can't tell you how many handles were in this hessian sackful. I said, what are you doing with all these? He collects model cars, which have rubber wheels, which when you put them on a flat surface, the bottom of the wheel goes flat due to ageing. So he suspended them over these handles because they were just the perfect width. So there's 101 uses for everything. Another wonderful story we had, I was putting a helmet, an old uh, Roman-style helmet with a, a broom that went mm-hmm. down the centre. Centurion. Tree, that's the one, <laughs> thank you, um, on a mannequin. And uh, literally as I was putting it on the mannequin, a guy walked past and I went, oh, my gosh, I designed that for a theatre show 12 years ago. And I know. 
here it is again. So it's had this other life. It's come back. He went home and he emailed me his original sketches and a photograph of it on stage. And it was exactly the, it was that helmet. So there's this beautiful circular thing that happens at Reverse Garbage oh, as well. This is so important, this chat, Kirsten, because in this sort of materialistic oh, world that we live yeah. in, everyone's got to buy something new. new. Everything's designed to fail, which yeah. drives me nuts. No. Oh, my <laughs> God. Let's have a rant, shall we? Oh, but you ministering an idea here and an institution almost that is getting us out of that thinking, yeah. getting young children and even corporates to start thinking about oh, reuse use. in a creative but, way. And before reuse, we place reduces even higher now. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Recycle for us is, is down the bottom. So it was reduce, reuse, recycle. We've added refuse to emphasise that slow down message that you, you know, consider your actions. How long are you going to use this? Do you really need it? Could you share it? That's another beautiful thing that's starting now is that whole sharing economy um, with tool libraries and borrowing from the basic library idea, but extending it. Because the average, I don't know if you know this, but the um, how long do you reckon the average power tool is used once it's bought? Uh, Home power tool. Well, if I'm any Not guide. maybe yours, <laughs> but your average, you know, home. I don't know. Give it's, it's, it's about 11 or 12 minutes. What are you talking about? Ever? Ever. What? Yes. That, uh, there's been research done to that. So with the whole tool library, there's one that's been started in the inner west. So people can borrow the tool for that 11 minutes or the one a few occasions that they need it and then take it back and tool library yes how do i where do people find their local tool library well i think you just <laughs> google it really but what i can let you there's, there's a great one that's part of um petersham bowling club i know there's one up in the blue mountains i i'm sure if you google them you will find them wow <laughs> tool mm. library. What are some of the, the the real key messages? I know we've probably touched on them, but what are some of the key messages you tell the kids when they're when they're in there? To really look at things, consider. They get it. I think kids mm. these days are really very aware about sustainability and reuse. Next time people say this is rubbish. That's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. There is potential in there, everything that you throw is. out. Absolutely. Kirsten, it's been great chatting. I'm going to encourage everyone now to go to their fridge and write these words down. Refuse, reduce, reuse and recycle. You're listening to Better Ideas. Now, we talk refuse, reduce, reuse and recycle now, up next is Adam Goodhams from Gardening Better, our sister podcast, and he's building his own home extension and keeping the build as sustainable as he can. Now, this is important because actually the act of building causes so much of a carbon footprint. So if we can reduce it at the build stage, it makes a big, big impact. But he's also a history buff, and he's going to talk generational history and sustainability. Adam, you're a big advocate of looking at previous generations where sustainability was born out of necessity. This was actually 
probably the beginning of my sort of change of awareness, and this does actually date back 20 plus years. And when I was first studying horticulture and landscape at TAFE, we had environmental studies as a first year subject. They gave us a great major assignment, which was to do an environmental impact statement on yourself, you know, which is a great way to, to say, oh, God, what do I do? Oh, I know. <laughs> exactly. And I thought this must have been the journalist coming out of me before I'd even gotten into the industry, you know, but yeah. I thought, no, I'm going to take a different angle on this. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to do a compare and contrast between myself and our family and my mother, who is still, is still fit and fully functional at 94 years of age today, wow. her family back when she was around the same age that I was. And it was a total eye-opener, Pete. Sustainability that a home had back then was just quite incredible. But we tend to approach sustainability from an environmental angle. For them, it was pure frugality. You know, They had to make sure that they had as much food on the table as possible from as many sources. They didn't waste and they didn't throw away. You know, you did darn your socks. You did repair a machine. My grandfather passed away long before I was born, but his shed was still there at, at my nan's house. And it was it was like Aladdin's cave of stuff. Throw nothing away. Might use that one day. Everywhere down the line, stuff got used and reused. And I use the example of chickens when I'm talking about a comparison between our generation and their generation. You know, today, they're a bit of a backyard novelty and you get a couple of eggs and they become Ethel the pet chook and that sort of thing. And you have a nice little ceremony when they pass away and bury them somewhere down the backyard. But in my mum's day, those same chickens, they were incredibly useful workers in the garden because they were they were laying eggs. All of their bedding was used for the compost and for, for mulching in the veggie gardens. They picked out weeds. They picked grubs off the cabbages and things like that. When they stopped laying, they became Sunday lunch. Didn't even end at that point because the carcass would likely then be slow simmered and turned into stock for use in, in soups and things. There was this cradle to grave type of use of resources. You know, sure, they were part of the family, but they were also <laughs> expected to pull their weight at every stage along the way. A lot of the things we do with recycling now, they were very prominent particularly during the 20s, 30s, and then during the 40s, because they became critical when the country was on a war footing. All of these materials that might have otherwise gone to waste were being you know, put into uh, manufacturing processes for industry. You're a big history buff too, and you've got a, a lot of knowledge of, of Norfolk Island, the early settlers, and, and Sydney Harbour. Going back to the early settlers, I mean, there is a really ingrained survival sustainability spirit born out of the early settlement of this country. You're right, I am a bit of a bit of a closet history nerd as well, but yeah, Europeans came to Australia and tried to apply European type principles to a very very different land. What they did would be if you were to try and throw people today onto the moon with just one spaceship full of supplies and say there you go survive. It's not too dramatically different to what happened back then when they came out to Australia. Now, many people don't realise the first fleet arrived in Sydney Cove. They actually had a second mission, which was to settle Norfolk Island. So Norfolk Island was, in fact, settled by the first fleet. And, and it's the only place left in Australia where you can see fully intact first fleet buildings from the, the early 1790s. You can't see that anywhere else in the country. But the interesting thing was that Sydney Cove virtually starved. They were 
working with horrible skeletal soils, really shallow soil, really infertile soils. Whereas the pine noodle colony out on Norfolk Island that only started with about 24 people, they prospered. When I went out there covering a story a while back, um, one of the farmers, I was talking to him about his soil and he said, oh no, mate, it's not real good around here. My top soil's only two metres deep. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they've got this incredible soil. So the farms out there did very well. And in fact, they were sending a lot of a lot of produce back to Sydney Cove and they stopped Sydney Cove from starving on a number of occasions. But the simple fact was you had a very small number of people in on a very small island who had no choice but to operate in a very sustainable fashion because if they didn't look after their resources, then there were no resources to be had anywhere else. You know, reprovisioning could be months away. But even out there today, they're they're deeply, deeply sustainable. But for them, it's again, it's sustainability out of necessity because it's very difficult to still get freight onto the island. Air freight is obviously very expensive. Everything else comes in by boat and they don't have a harbour. So it has to be offloaded onto whale boats, you know, lighters, those Mm. classic old wooden boats, and then towed in through the reefs and and craned up onto the wharf. So everything, I think it's about $1,000 a cubic metre or something like that to get freight out there. It's incredibly expensive. Great Australian case study in itself of, of early settlers as being self-sufficient, I love I love the metaphor of of landing on the moon. I mean, that's a great one. The the, the first fleeters. C- correct me if I'm wrong. James Roos was the was was on the first fleet, and he basically was a young convict that went to Philip, and basically said, "Mr. Philip, I reckon I can save this colony. Give me some land out west, and mm, see if I can mm. start growing stuff." He's a fascinating well, yeah. young young man, uh, James Roos, in the early part of the economy in terms of sustainability in introducing gardening originally to Sydney Cove. That's what's really interesting. When you read back through, um, I, w- I was doing some research on the, the surviving historic gardens around Sydney and a lot of the notes you run across, particularly Elizabeth MacArthur's notes, she refers to going out and doing the gardening and she's not talking about you know going and deadheading the roses and, and sweeping the pathways. To them, doing the gardening was in fact going out into the food gardens, going out and looking after the crops and bringing the harvest in and that sort of thing. As much as they had to be sustainable from the perspective of, of looking after themselves and their, their finite resources, they, they didn't understand the, the soil management, the soil husbandry very well. And a lot of damage was done to you know the, the soils through applying European-style practices to very fragile topsoils and there was a lot of resulting erosion and, and problems you know, that realistically we do still see today. Well, you're making me feel feel a little bit better because I've been given this challenge to try and grow something I can eat, and I have about as much knowledge as, as some of the guys on the first fleet. But I've <laughs> but I have planted some basil and some lettuce, and um, I've, and and I've crossed my fingers. <laughs> I was going to ask how well they were going, Pete, because I, I have been following you on Instagram. Oh, you've, been, you've, been, you've been brave enough to use your uh, gardening versus Peter hashtag. Yeah. I've, I've been following your progress, so oh, I was going dear. to ask how things have gone. Well, well, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still getting up every morning with the two boys and looking over the top of the edge of the pot plant, and we're just sort of, you know, we're still saying. Oh, oh, it's pathetic, I know, but I do live in hope. But the other question I had is you've, you're now building yourself, and you're applying... Mm. Something I perhaps know a bit more about is building with sustainable principles. What have you applied in terms of the the house that you're building in terms of trying to make it really sustainable? That's been challenging, Peter, because you know it's really 
the ultimate case study of putting your money where your mouth is. You know, mm. it's very easy to stand on a soapbox and talk about it, but then when you actually have to stump up and do something about it, I did exactly the same sort of thing that I encourage people to do when they're thinking about sustainability. You have to divide everything up into ways that make it easier to think about. Otherwise, you'll do your head in. So I, I split it into two sorts of simplistic areas. And number one was how we were going to embed sustainability into the project itself. And the other side was how we were going to manage the project sustainably. So from the point of view of waste and use of materials and all of that sort of thing. Construction, yeah. From the building side of it, we set out to integrate as much passive heating and cooling into the place as we possibly could because being in the subtropics obviously heat is is more of an issue than than cold but you still need to make sure you've got the right sort of insulation so we have a a very large outdoor entertaining space which has been designed so we can use it like a basically an outdoor lounge room now we clad both sides of those walls with the linear boards and we chose them one of the main reasons we chose them is that you'd know that normal normal weatherboard is about eight mil thick or so the linear is 16 mil thick which gives you excellent thermal values so for example on a western facing wall we've got that and then the wall has insulation in it and then that same weatherboard is on the inside area as well so standing against this western wall with the sun beating down on it on a hot summer's day and you feel virtually zero heat coming through it ceilings in the outdoor spaces are all raked so it basically means that any heat that collects in one corner will travel up to the centre and then escape out through the top the top peak. In that same western-facing wall, we put in big bays of louvers for ventilation. But rather than putting glass in them, we had aluminium baffles put into them, aluminium blades instead of glass. And the big advantage of them is that they are total block out in the in the full sun but they also deflect heat very well when they're open or closed they look pretty much just like your standard plantation shutters they allow us to maximize ventilation and keep the heat out when we when we don't want it and then in winter when you want some more light coming through you open them right up and they bounce all the light right into the area little areas like that that you you start to look at how you can make an area function and you often see outdoor entertaining spaces with ceiling fans we were able to avoid putting those fans in so because the the area is is cooling itself through convection and then that ventilation that we've added in there those sort of aspects give you the ability to you know really deeply embed sustainability another one too is we used for example steel piers and steel floor frames termites are much more of an issue up here in the warmer climates than than down south but using steel basically makes it termite proof but in the longer term it also means that any anti-termite treatments we have to have we don't have to use the same sort of degree of treatment because we don't have that higher level of risk because of all the timbers there's all sorts of different aspects of sustainability you can you can integrate in there from the point of view of the you know construction and materials we've done a pretty big reno here we've nearly doubled the square meterage of the of the property and I have only taken about three, maybe four ute loads of waste to the tip. And every one of those loads was actually sorted into what could be recyclable and, you know, the various metals and all that sort of thing. The rest of the stuff that came out of here, I sold window frames on Gumtree. I gave stuff away on community Facebook groups, you know, like decking we lifted up and things like that. Yep. All the soil that came out of our excavations was reused on site for creating new garden and landscape areas. So we basically 
that actually saved us a lot of money because we didn't have all the waste disposal fees also improved the sustainability. Mm. We were working with a builder, obviously, through a lot of it. We are owner-buildering it. I'm obviously not a licensed builder. And I drove him nuts in the first page <laughs> because he'd just be doing the usual. You know, he'd be on the chop saw and he'd throw a bit of timber over his shoulder to go into the waste pile. And I'd say to him, no, nah, if it's longer than 400 mil, keep it. Yeah, we can do <laughs> so, something with that. Yeah, we had this stockpile of offcuts. And then, then a couple of months later, he went, oh, this stockpile's the best. When I need, <laughs> when I need, when I need noggins, I'm not cutting up six-metre bits of timber. All i got to do is just go zip, zip, zip and take the ends of these little bits and I've got everything here. <laughs> it's a mindset. It really, it really is a mindset. I think that's the, the big message that uh, that we've got we've got to keep in mind. But you have identified, if I may, the two to two big principles trying to build sustainability. It's not only the ongoing design and the passive design, and you've identified the Western facade as a major issue to try and control. But the biggest impact building an architecture has on the environment is actually in the building of the build. The actual construction mm. of the house, that's when the biggest impact has. So if you can source local materials so you're not carting things across, you know, Carrera marbles from Italy or exotic timbers from South America, you, you choose local uh, sustainable building products and then you put them together in a way that cuts down on the time the labour is on site. That's when a building contributes enormously to the Earth's carbon footprint. And therefore, if you're building with materials that aren't going to corrode or rust or break down, it means that building hopefully won't have to be rebuilt for a couple of hundred years. And so that big impact mm-hmm. construction has is, is, is offset. So they're the two big things when you're, when you're constructing. Sustainability and sustainable living. Now, it really is a mindset, isn't it? Now, I hope you've enjoyed our efforts to to dig deep into making the planet more sustainable. Now, speaking of mindset, next week, we're taking that into the home office space. Not only creating a home office space, but looking at your own self-mindset, your own inner personal space, and how important that is to get right if you're ever thinking about going to business for yourself and setting up your own home office. Now, this is a really fascinating chat with Marilyn Wilson Beretta, who's a business coach who's done a lot of work with people setting up their own office space, from CEOs to mums and dads, getting the ideas flowing and creating a space to make sure you see them through. Don't miss this chat. If ever you've thought about coming up with your own idea, your own business idea and doing it from home. Oh, now don't forget on Better Homes and Gardens this Friday night, Dr. Harry is doing a house call on a surfing pug, a surfing dog. That's this Friday night on 7 at 7. You've been listening to Better Ideas. Now, Loretta Farrell is my producer, Nikki Hamilton's the executive producer, and I'm your host, Pete Calhoun. This is a 7 West Media podcast.